0: guys it's great to have you both on so uh we're gonna kick we're gonna kick off unfortunately you're stuck with me chandana's uh not gonna make it so we be just us four Sorry, three, three middle-aged guys <laughs> moaning. am
1: i th- am i there now that's that's yeah, me yeah, you're in i am there i, I, <laughs> yeah. I sell by it i sell by it <laughs> um i'm still technically millennial though i was born in 81 so Are you? okay yeah. oh wow oh man you don't just look so shocked.
0: <laughs> You're going to be one of these annoying people who's successful at a young age, you know? It's, it's, yeah,
1: that's amazing. Let's let history decide that one, I think.
0: We're going to go back a little bit. We're going to not, not 1981, but maybe 1980, maybe 1995, Ken. And uh, you can give us a little bit of a flavour for the early years before you studied uh, computer science.
1: Um. So, how far would you want me to go back?
0: Oh, uh, tell us about like growing up in it was Dublin, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Born, born and raised in Dublin. Um, I was about to jump into a fresh Prince uh, of Bel <laughs> uh, skit there. <laughs> yeah, born, and raised, born and raised in Dublin, and um, uh, went to school in, in went to National School, primary school in, in Castleknock, and then secondary school in a, in a school called St Thomas College in Ballsbridge. After that went to IT Tala where I studied computing and IT um, and worked on the techie side of the world um, enjoyed that hugely um, but always loved the business side um, from kind of grew up in an entrepreneurial family uh, dad was you know successful in his own right and in, in every right I suppose um, to be fair to him um, you know he left school when he was young to set up the the business that he ran um, had 120 people employed um, in Dublin, and uh, so I always kind of grew up in that environment, so it was that kind of strange itch of both, you know, first computer coming into the house at 14 years of age, Packard Bell P60, Um, so remember it well, upgrading, going to Compu Store and seeing Siemens Green, upgrading the RAM from 8 megs to 16, wow, I do feel old now, okay, (laughs) Um, but um, yeah, so kind of always had that kind of twin track, the tech side and the business side, and enjoyed both sides of them. um worked you know had a number of entrepreneurial endeavors and forays and everything from setting up a web design company with a couple of college friends through to you know some some wacky ideas uh, some even more wacky ideas um and worked then uh in the likes of gateway hp dell Got some, some travel in, worked for an Irish company called uh, CR2. Um, we would do banking and ATM software, great company. Really nice people there. Uh, love the team there. Uh, and began in IT and then kind of slowly kind of moved over into more of the business side. Um, but I left there and set up uh, the, the, the one of my kind of biggest pushes into the entrepreneurial world, which was a, a recruitment and candidate management software uh, called uh, Candidates Direct.
0: Were you the founder of that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the biggest lesson was always the founder and developer of it um, and realized I wasn't actually that good a coder. Um, but it's much better to sit behind a computer and code than it is to go out and get a rejection from trying to sell and close a deal. You know? right. So I perfected perfected this, this, this product, this solution, and it was really good. It was genuinely really good. And we had McDonald's Restaurants Ireland, Friends First, DAA, Brown Thomas's, and a whole host of others come on, Anglo-Irish Bank, uh, come on board to use the platform and it was, I wrote a little script to work out how many lines of code had been written and it was, I think it was five and a half copies of War and Peace were written over a 18-month period of time. So I have a very, very understanding wife who I met when I was 16, okay. uh, 50 year in school. So she's kind of, uh, you know, the entrepreneur's wife or the entrepreneur's husband, I suppose, the entrepreneur's spouse. Um and the challenges that they have to go and the support that they have to provide for the entrepreneurs is, is huge. Um, and unfortunately, November 2008 came and hit and wiped us out. That was the end of recruitment as, oh, no. as we could see it. Yeah. At this stage, I was joined by a good friend of mine, Stephen Noonan, and um, I remember we kind of, it was October, November time. We went, we drove out to Donnie Strand. We were, we were part of the DIT hothouse program. And we drove out to Donnie Strand and we sat Sat in the pier at aliment Strand.
0: Can I stop you for a second? Of course, you can. But tell us, tell us about the jump from the kind of relatively safe world to doing your own thing. Like, what was the, what was the spark that uh, ignited that change?
1: I think it was the the joy that it brought. Um,
0: so, from you know- watching your dad, or or. Did you just get fed up working in a big company, or what was
1: the? I don't think I don't think it was ever a case of getting fed up and working in a big company. I think it was always the always the want to be. Always the want to be part of. I was always the class clown. I was always the entertainer at the party. I was always that person. So I always wanted to be or continue that in in my career. Um, so I remember sitting this this faithful day in on Dollyman's Ram with 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 Stephen and and we we opened up a, a, a recruitment website and we, we listed all the industries, you know, starting with aviation and working our way down. And we just was like, no, that's in serious trouble. That's in serious trouble. And we basically just said, we're done. Oh, wow. uh, I made a call on it, which was, which was absolutely gut wrenching. Um, worked in a, an off-license then for the next couple of months in, in brother-in-law's off-license on Mead Street. And then was invited to, uh, to work with a company, a teleco company called Blueface. Um to help them do a strategy review um, and just sort of help them maybe see the wood for the trees. Uh, nothing more than that. And they liked what was there perhaps and asked me to stay on as commercial and technical director for them, which I did for about three years. And then I moved on to the NDRC, the National Digital Research Center, where I was an entrepreneur in residence helping to commercialize a lot of what what, what great projects that they had. One of them was SilverCloud.
0: It's the IOR thing is a... Is a term you hear and it means different things to different people what what did it mean in practice for you
1: um i think in practice it kind of meant help you know because they had assembled these amazing groups of people that were academics or clinicians or but would have probably quite a limited exposure to commercial rigor commercial reality um sort of sales um Um, And needed help on that, needed help on how to commercialize what they had, what they were working on. So um, that's that's what it meant to me. Um, And I met with the team, Uh, I'm gonna get the timing right. I'm gonna say 2010, uh, about October, November, 2010. And met with the team and was just blown away by them, what they were doing, the process that they have, the effort that they made, the time they put into it, the passion that they had. And uh, yeah, fast forward, make a long story short. 12 plus months later um i uh, decided to go native as they say so decided to we decided to spin out the ip we were we were selling the ip to a uk company at the time uh, uk publicly limited company and it was clear the uk public company was was taking the proverbial um i wanted just to see this ip go back up on a shelf into an academic or into a university and not be seen again um so at the end of a very frustrating meeting slammed in the book left spoke to the guys said why don't we do this ourselves um and kind of the the thoughts that went around people's heads were listen this is um you know if they don't like it and they're a big company and they don't like it i don't think there's something here and i said "Listen, big companies make big mistakes um so we did uh, we took that company head-on um and broke into the uk market um as being kind of our first big push okay. uh with silver cloud so we spun out in i think it was been march 2012 but listen that's all nostalgia that's history without the pain as they say uh yeah. it's very easy to gloss over so many of the sleepless nights in between and as, yeah. as jim would say and test to yeah. as well
0: well that's that's perfect so then let's bridge over meanwhile in boston if we go back to the mid-90s jim you were starting out in financial services having watched your your dad would be successful oh, wow. Is that yeah let's
2: go way back
0: <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> you remember back those days yeah, so have tell us tell us a little bit about your early you know career before you got to starting companies and investing in companies and kind of what the what the motivating yeah. force was
2: i i was dying to become uh i was dying to become a stockbroker you know i was i it was it was kind of a cool job my favorite movie uh was wall street you know <laughs> with, uh, uh and and my my father was a kind of a well known stockbroker in the Boston area. He had the same name as me, and you know used to walk around doing that. We my wife calls it doing the Jim Joyce meeting people. You know I was, but I was dying to. I wanted to go into financial services because my dad did it. Yeah, fascinated by um, investment markets and stock markets and you know that whole system. And I just thought it was a wild world. And plus, when I unlike your time, Ken, there were no well probably maybe similar, there was no jobs, you know, that was like a really, you know, that was a good job. So I, so I, I had to learn how to, um, and I'd kind of been involved in sales, like, you know, I did an economics degree at Fordham and, um, you know, kind of business and sales. And that was kind of how I I was trying to learn about that. Um, and it joined it and I just had an absolute blast, you know, working with a bunch of people, my age, trying to understand investments and the markets, and um, just totally pumped about it. I did. I actually, you know, starting companies, I didn't really know there was such a thing as starting a companies at that stage. I just, I don't know if I wasn't that worldly. <laughs> <I'm sure.
0: laughs> just investing in them.
2: <laughs> yeah. Investing them and fascinated by, you know, I'm kind of a, as you know, I'm kind of a quick thinker, you know, I kind of like to analyze things and yeah. kind of jump into it. I've just found that fascinating. Yeah.
0: So you did that for a couple of, for a little while and a couple of firms, and then you ended up well, you moved to shearing Cloud. That, that, that was quite a big transition, right?
2: Uh, well, you know, no. I realized quite, very quickly after being a stockbroker for two years that I never wanted to do it again. You know, <laughs> so so, um, <laughs> so it seemed to me. It seemed to me, I, you know, and no offense to the, you know, to the good people that do it, but it was like, you know, every day seemed like Groundshog's Day, and it was chasing the sale and chasing those things. So I decided to go uh, do an MBA, which was quite fashionable at the time before yeah. they became unfashionable. And, and I came up with the idea, um, I had some family in Ireland, that came up with the idea of doing an MBA in Ireland, yep. um, at University College of Dublin. Yep. So I kind of, I actually hopped on a plane with a friend of mine, we went to Ireland, we fell in love with the place, did an MBA. And coming out of the MBA, I said to myself, I, it, it seemed to me the MBA spent a lot of time talking about things, you know, and <laughs> strategizing. And I'm like, you know you're gonna go want to work for an industry where they can afford to pay for people just to sit around talking about things and and so, so the two areas was either either financial services or the pharmaceutical or was it the pharmaceutical industry or the technology industry seemed to be the place that okay. was the most so i I convinced so I remember uh, sharing Plow pharmaceuticals was recruiting at in Dublin and they were looking to hire Irish people and they accidentally hired an American um, Is that true
0: because
2: I, I was a i was a good talker yeah yeah the irish people were sitting in the corner being too shy i walked across the room introduced myself <laughs> and then got hired back into sharing plows um uh, headquarters back in new jersey yeah. So, um, yeah that was that was my move into the farm industry in my twenties. Yeah. you know
0: yeah yeah and then you did the best part of 10 years of that and you ended up kind of running the irish business and and then you got a you got you got itchy itchy feet and and then yeah. yeah yeah
2: unlike ken unlike ken's story i was kind of you know i want to start running things right away as soon as i learned anything i wanted to run it you know so so i would so i was moving my way through the sharing plow ranks and it's funny i landed in i landed in ireland and i set up the division for sharing plow so i was the first that was the first kind of commercial division that they set up so i built a business um, it was kind of like I was building my own business, but I had the backing of a big pharmaceutical company and I was again, fascinated by Ireland. I was fascinated by the What was happening in Ireland that you could talk to ministers and you could, you know, you can meet this kind of high level exact, you know, kind of people. Uh, people. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then people were kind of, you know, I was also fascinated by the, in the Irish market, like when we would do pharmaceutical sales in the U S you would fight to see four people in the, in a day, in the UK, you would fight to see two people in a day. In an Ireland, you'd see thirteen people a day, <laughs> and and every single person would tell you they would they would buy, you know, they would they would prescribe your product first.
0: Oh, and at the end is. of the day,
2: the Irish person would tell you that actually none of them were going to prescribe your product at the end of the conversation. <laughs> so I was fascinated by the pharma market, and I decided, I you know, I was gifted with a, a very challenging boss <laughs> that, that <laughs> I didn't think. Didn't, didn't see the full potential in Jim Joyce, you know, the way I saw it. And, yeah. and I saw an opportunity to set up my first company, which was uh, Point of Care.
0: Yeah, Point of Care, yeah. So you left You left the relative safety of Shearing Plow and you yep. um, we, we went out on your own, right? It was, it was literally you and...
2: Yep. I, I went out on my own and I tried to, you know, parlay a little bit of the reputation I had and some contacts I made into raising some capital. And I built a business, I had a business plan. Yeah. And I walked in and I got people to fund the business plan of the idea of um, kind of almost like changing the Irish healthcare system. <laughs> so it was like James trying to migrate um, yeah. care for patients that start in the hospitals and need to be maintained in the community on uh, like IV administration systems. So I, I came up with this concept and pitched into them, and it was incredibly ambitious, um, completely naive. Yeah. Uh, and and I raised capital and I just started pursuing it. So I think that is that when we met, Martin. Is that?
0: Yeah, that was around the time we met. Yeah, around the, as you were probably four or five years into it at that stage. And right. So, so then right. I wanted to basically in this session I wanted to kind of get your combined views of selling into the Irish health system, selling yes. into the UK health system, and then selling into the US because you have you have experience. Both of you have experience of those different systems. So I thought it would be interesting to get the different perspectives of what was Jim's story selling into HSC and what was Ken's and then we could do the same for the NHS and the same in the US. So tell us about, you know, the 13 people you met who all said they'd buy the product. Tell us about the, you know, when you then actually asked them to sign the check and put their hand in their pocket, uh, which yeah. new innovative point of care solution. What? what how, did that, how did that play out?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, I, I find that the Irish market is, so it, it like, like the, the lack, of inst- the lack of kind of like rigidity to the market, you know, early stage can be quite attractive. Like, so meaning that there's not a lot of, you're not competing with a lot of systems, you know, a lot of existing systems and existing structures yeah. and classic systems. So there's undoubtedly some angle to get your product introduced into the marketplace. And then people are quite willing to talk to you, you know so the conversations kind of get going. So you're kind of, you're talking to people. So they kind of that gating you know, in the Irish marketplace is a little less, but then the lack of the system to kind of scale your product or to go, you know, beyond that, it becomes a disadvantage really, really quickly. So you can kind of, you can kind of get initial, some initial traction, some initial feedback in the Irish market, but then there's no way, if you have a really compelling product, then there's not not a natural bridge to kind of scaling it to the next, you know, to the next system and in the market becomes quite competitive really quickly you know in the irish marketplace so any of the big institutions are quite tricky to work with but there's lots of different little angles so experimentation good and scaling very uh, you know uh, kind of
0: binary i don't know what you're there is that a similar story from silver cloud
1: yeah i mean you know um not not mention the hsc or or anyone in particular i I think there's always been a challenge in selling into ireland and listen i'm as guilty of it as any other irish person um we're we're one of the hardest markets to sell into and i tell people that repeatedly go and sell into somebody said it before to me and i can't remember who it was but they were spot on go sell to manchester first um not for any not for any other negative reason other than it's just the way we're wired we're just wired slightly differently which is essentially to look at everything with a mass degree of skepticism a mass degree of sure my cousin could build that or my nephew could do that. And he could do it for a tenth the price. Um, and, and your negotiation just is starting on that that, that keel. Right. And, and probably from an Irish perspective, it may have changed. So I, I moved over to Boston three years ago. It might have changed since. But there's a an unwillingness for us to pay for software. Mm. Or a f- perception of it versus, to use a term that you use, Jim, mm-hmm. The rigidity that is there in the UK, and oh my god, it's there in the US in, in different ways. And, and listen, all, all three markets have their challenges, of course they do. Um, and it's a very different set of skills. It's the old adage, What got us there won't get us, what got us here won't get us to there. You kind of need to really apply that to each country as you go in and you go after. So, yeah, I you know, we really didn't interact with with kind of Irish healthcare systems, let's call them that. Um, until we were we had a huge share of the uk market uh if i'm being kind of honest and it was just it was really 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 disheartening for (laughs) us we tried everything
0: is is it true that like they're more likely to listen to jim because he's got an american accent than you or me do you think that's a factor and
1: i don't even know if it comes down to that um i don't know what it is i really don't know what it is um
0: so 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 you you basically cracked the UK market or got a, a chunk of it before you then came back and and then, yeah. and, and after that and it was I
1: I always remember one adage which was there was a, a traveling, a roaming group that went around the world. Um uh, it was a mental health leadership group, and a very senior person within one of the big Irish health systems reached out and said, I'm very embarrassed to learn about you through and was asked about you through some American middle Midwest health system um and jesus your stuff looks great um yeah i i don't know whether that's coming as a back of the skepticism or or, or what it is but um it was certainly yeah, it, a big challenge for us I, I,
0: I, you were you, you were successfully cracked the irish market Like you, yeah. you were, go on, tell us that
2: well, yeah, I mean, what, it, it's hundred percent. It's hard, right? You know, it's almost like it, it, you know. It, I, I could see if I knew more about the Irish market, I would have done Ken's strategy. You know, I would have gone to the <laughs> if I knew more about it. Yeah. Um, but I think that the l- this lack of framework, right? This lack of like, so, so like you know, I cracked it through the pharmaceutical companies, um, and then you know, my first company, very painfully, I, I, I had a theory to crack it through the ins- the health insurance companies. And, and I kind of saw, I saw a, you know, I saw like my classic, you know, my MacGuffin theory, which was like, you know, if I could get the smallest insurance company to reimburse it, you know, and kind of move up the chain, but then I realized that actually, you know, the largest insurance company would be quite reluctant to, you know, embrace kind of the innovation we're bringing in. And in my second company, um, it was the pharmaceutical company. So it was the fact that the pharmaceutical companies had scale and access to patients. And, and so if they didn't have that, I wouldn't have approached them that way. So mm. it was like, I, you know, I was almost exclusively looking at it saying they had distribution, they were willing to pay for it. And they had probably more of an international mindset, you know, about kind of, you know, structuring programs and bringing them through and how that's going on. So that's how we cracked the pharma market. i uh, sorry, the Irish market Yeah, it was on the back of the multinationals. Yeah. You know, that had some kind of procurement process and some kind of, you know, more sophisticated buying patterns because to, uh, but I agree with Ken though, the, the lack of willingness to kind of pay up for the services is, is, can be a real problem sometimes. And then a lot of times what happens is then you'll have a, you you know, you won't have a competitive market and ultimately they have to pay up for it. Mm-hmm. But in that kind of market formation, um, uh, def- definitely, definitely. I, I mean, now I'm finding it for experimentation. Excellent. Um, you know, yeah. we're starting to get, you know, cloud in the market, but
0: yeah,
2: I think I can how how right do here. you
0: how do you how do you compare that to the UK then, which is obviously much bigger, much more structure? I uh, can yeah. you, you've had some success there, and Jim, you have as well. Like, tell us like how how you compare kind of the Irish market and the and the NHS and what your how that kind of change your strategy in terms of market entry or, or market scaling.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, like I, I'll, like Ken will talk about it more because he's had more success there than I've had because we're just kind of entering into it. We've had a few goes at the UK market and you know, for the product that we're selling where we're trying to get access to a certain type of patient that's already has a level of support um, that we found that we, there was more support in the UK that we had to compete. Like in, in the Irish market, there wasn't the support. We didn't have to compete against a lot of support that was there. Whereas in the UK market, there was a decent amount of support and the NHS had you know fairly sophisticated structure, so um, so I think that I like selling into the UK market. You know I think that there's there's a level of clarity to it, um, and there's a level of communication. But you, you it's like anything you you have to be willing to not get your first sale for for a period of time. So you have to kind of stay the distance on the market and and, yeah. and kind of go at it for a long period of time. Whereas I think you can get I think you get some joy in the Irish market a little bit earlier. Yeah. So I feel like now we're going. We you know we just got appointed by the NHS England for, as a you know Health Beacon did as a you know through their procurement process, which is kind of like the first step. Yeah, you know, and then now we have to kind of sell into the market. But that that be my take, Ken. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's a lovely phrase, and it's one I think we should pass down. Um, the fact that I'm now being classified as middle aged um, passed down to the younger generations. Um, <laughs> it's that persistence. It's that staying in the in the the boxing ring. And it's just, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, it's going to take multiple goes and you just got to stay in and just keep getting hit um, and stay in it for as long as you possibly can do. Um, yeah. For me, like if I cast my mind back to 2010, 2011 um, in Ireland, it was a blessed relief to fly to London um, because it was, that was the time I stopped listening to Irish radio uh, because I couldn't take it anymore. It was news talk. It was just, yeah. Horrific to listen to the news all the time. Um, and it was this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of negativity.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and listen, I'm not looking for 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 dishonest news about of positivity, but I am looking for some level of balance here. So if you picture it, you know, you fly in, you leave Dublin, and there was loads of people who th- this was Terminal Two was just built or was built a couple of years at this stage. So it was brand new, still spanky new uh Lingus kind of had dominance in it. um you're in and out of the lounge and it was all the same faces you saw all the time all the time um and i basically lived that life for for quite some time just flying back and forth to london manchester wherever it might be but you would come out of the airport you know you'd hop into uh into the tube or or into a train or whatever it is and you'd walk out and you walked out into oh wow they're actually still buying and selling things here. Business is still going on. Versus in Ireland, it was the opposite. It was just lockdown, right. misery, horrific. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, it was it was a strange tonic almost. It was a, a welcome uh, tonic that they were they were there was a willingness to to continue commerce. Um, so that was kind of the backdrop of 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 the first number of years uh, flying back and forth to the UK. Um, quickly made my way through the Airlingus royalty uh, loyalty program um on on shorts short hops, uh which is unusual apparently i was told um and yeah we we entered the market um there was a, an existing competitor there who was the one who was buying the ip back at the at the, the earlier story um we just basically went into a dogfight with them um You know, they hadn't invested in the product. They hadn't invested in their offering. They were overselling, under-delivering. Lots of cliches, I realized, and all the stuff I just said. But there is something there, which is the the under-investing the product. There is something there about allowing your sales team, or even you encouraging your sales team, um, to sell, oh, I know this organization only needs 1,000 licenses. I'll sell them 5,000. Yeah. and you know what who cares what happens you know you have a great year the first year second year will be what the hell and third year is going to be dismal That's yeah. kind of what happened to them after a couple of years um and we kind of changed the pricing model we changed the pricing structure we changed all these various elements uh and moved to a to a much more uh pricing model which is much more about uh engaged users rather than population coverage because they would sell population coverage and they would walk away with a huge big check, but we were we were wedded to the success by selling based on the number of activations. Essentially, so if the organization didn't activate it, we didn't really get paid. Um, so both us and the organization were 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 wedded for success. I suppose was 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 a key thing. Right. So that kind of win 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 um, uh, mentality is is same as what we took here to the U.S.
0: And did you have to go kind of hospital by hospital or trust by trust? Yeah. Or was it was it that like you know that once you, it took a long time for the first domino to fall, but once it fell, it kind of went around. Or tell us a little bit about. Yeah.
1: Think. No. No. We did. And and um, uh, um, Ashton, who was kind of our first uh, sales member, um, myself and herself were were flying back and forth all the time um she had a contact in Durling Durling and darlington um nhs service who's one of the first NHSs who took a chance on us um of the very early ones um and the nhs has been really really good to us um in what regard um i think in, in willingness to embrace embrace what we were doing and why um willingness to give us a chance um there's been a few amazing organizations along our journey some very big ones uh, one of the biggest insurers in the world one of the people in there took a, a serious gamble on us in july 2012 we were only six months old for god's sake mm-hmm. um uh, and with a huge contract at that time for us that was probably 80 percent of our revenue that year uh maybe more um they took a chance on us um and we made it work um because of the chance they took on us as well but um so it's character building, I suppose. But yeah, so back and forth, um, uh, we met with then a, another NHS service, uh, Berkshire NHS, just west side of London, um, where we met a really like-minded person, uh, Judith Chapman, who's their, their clinical director. Um, and we could see what her vision was for delivery of mental health care. Um, and we agreed to, to partner uh, and one of those partnerships that was win-win-win um uh, it meant that we were able to bring our product up to nhs spec and iaps increasing access to psychological therapy spec um and work together uh on bringing sopa a- across the uk across england and it was very much bring on one you get one more neighbor bring on that neighbor you might get two more and it's just you just kind of sell sell that way and yeah it it was time consuming but it was uh, it was the, it was uh, the game we knew we were playing against.
0: And was it um, was it very much based on those kind of personal connections? So, you know, the customer told their friend, and or or was it more formalized than that?
1: No, I think it was very much based on that. Mm. I think there was there was a, a vacuum in terms of the product that was that was there, the competing product, and in, in, in certain ways that we were helping to fill. But we moved from having kind of two, three. Programs within our mental health range to having 18 within about a year, a little over a year, which is an amazing uh, work from the team to yeah. do that. So we had a complete suite. So essentially, what that stopped was um, uh, competitors coming in uh, by offering point solutions so we kind of went to we moved into a much more platform strategy than 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 we perhaps were focused on originally um but yeah no it it was the it was the more informal um and at the end of the day the the nhs is focused on outcomes uh on access levels and on quality uh uh, of care um and, and cost reduction as well so I think that's universal of any health system around the world, whether you're in the Middle East or in, in the UK or, or here in the US. Um, and if you can help them to, to sort of get that value proposition to enable them to champion what you have, you'll go far, I think.
0: It, it's a very different, I mean, I agree with you, but it's a very different model to the US in that, that you know, a lot of places that they, you know, they don't really trust the private sector coming in, and there's a whole kind of the NHS is public, and then also, I mean, mental health. You know, eight years ago wasn't trendy. You know, it was it was very little money being spent. So, and now it's like you know one of the hardest areas. So, how how did you, how did you find that? You know, try to find the money. You know, because you know, how did you kind of sniff it out and figure out where the the budgets were?
1: Yeah, I mean, a huge challenge and an amazing team um that we have brought on um is how how we found it out uh, collectively together um persistence all those kind of things i remember one humorous story in in hindsight but kind of alarming story if you actually were, were back at the time which was we were in with a, a very well-known law firm in dublin um and uh in propositioning our wares in terms of mental health delivery and support and resilience and stress management at sleep and all these, uh, this sort of program ranges we were beginning to push into the more the employer segment. And, um, it was just met with, with stony face of no one in here has depression. No one in here has anxiety. What yeah. are you in here for? Yeah. Um, was literally the, 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 feedback that we got versus today. I mean, you know, COVID, one positive impact, if there could be in any way a positive impact of something as, as, as big as COVID-19, has been that we've moved from saying I'm stressed to I have anxiety. And that's a huge step forward uh, yeah. in that sort of stigma reduction, in that allowing people to have access to care. Um, and that's 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 very, very significant. In terms of hunting out the money, as I say, the, 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 the following the, the, the dollars, as they, they kind of say here with the US systems, it was a challenge um, and still is a challenge today. Um, you know, if you're not reimbursed, you're kind of forgotten about um, uh, in terms of delivery. But, you know, uh, there are innovation funds, there are access to those sort of pools um, um, in terms of delivery. And you just gotta keep going, going after those as much as you possibly can do as you grow. And, and we move more, more close, closer and closer to a reimbursement world. Um, and the way you get reimbursement is by showing the, the effectiveness, the, the, the direct and indirect return on investment. Um, you know, in the US, the, the interesting backdrop that is different is, uh, as Jim well knows, is um, the sheer cost of healthcare here. It's just staggering. As an Irish person or, or, or somebody from the UK, it's just a complete different mind shift. And me moving over here, I think was an essential part of me learning that uh and essential for the company um and and getting the 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 bills through the door for you know kid uh, son four-year-old son swallowing a coin um and going we're paying for what and the how and it was just we did we buy the ct machine um uh, <laughs> And the costs that are there, which is just phenomenal, and people don't realize that, you know, okay, this is certainly slightly more tabloidy, but the cost for an ambulance coming out to to, to bring into hospital could cost up to five grand, yeah. um, and you just then extrapolate that across every part of the U.S. healthcare system, and that's what is there today. So, the impact you're having in Ireland or in the U.K. about cost saving it's multiple times because the the amount of dollars that are spent here in the u.s
0: strategy then was to not start in ireland go to the uk crack the uk market and then you moved to us and you're living in the u.s jim if i got your strategy right you 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 kind of focused on ireland first and, and saw it as a great test market to kind of figure out a lot of dynamics and then you've moved to a lot of different international markets but now big focus on the US maybe tell us a little bit about kind
1: of before before Jim does because I'm going to be corrected on this strategy is what's happened in the past right. so that right. was we're all very you know strategy you know
0: <laughs> yeah strategy
1: is strategy is phenomenal yeah. when you look back on it in terms uh, of time right. we were trying we were shooting everywhere we were trying everything I, I just
2: want to know if you got the coin back
1: uh, we did actually yeah we okay, did okay
2: good
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs>
2: We, um, we I, you know, I thought of it this way. I, I kind of, having done companies before, I knew it was going to be hard, right? Like I kind of got that part. <laughs> I, taught, I learned that part the first time around. And, you know, and I knew, so I thought about it was that the, these multinationals, these pharmaceutical companies, I, I didn't know that I would keep selling into the pharma companies for as long as I have. But I kind of said, um, I want to design my product so that it can survive the, the, the multinational pharmaceutical company processes. So, so what, you know, what did they need? Well, they, you know, they had particular, you know, ways of doing planning, like annual plans. They have uh, particular medical legal reviews that you need to satisfy. They have certain types of validation processes, you know, they have how they pilot and then think about it for scale. So I kind of thought, um, I could use my pharmaceutical kind of industry know-how specifically in the Irish marketplace to kind of get exemplars, to get implementations, you know, of these different multinationals that could act as the evidence, you know, thing to get us into the next country uh, and then eventually get the attention of the, um, the global uh, teams that will allow us, you know, to sign, you know, master vendor agreements and kind of move from country to country. And, and it's kind of, know and i kind of almost did it like with my first big client um we kind of did it almost with them we were quite transparent about it they you know they got quite excited about our you know our hardware and our system you know for you know tracking adherence and injectable medication so so they were almost you know and and then we also they you know they would get incentivized almost for introducing innovation throughout the organization it was seen as a good thing as a way to get yourself promoted you know to move through the organization so I just tried to kind of really zero in all, on all their natural system incentives. You know, they, they were, you know, the way they bought, you, you know, would be different than an insurance system, you know, how they thought about return on investment. Sometimes they couldn't even talk about return on investment because of, you know, you know, regulations. So, so you had to just go so inside baseball as a term you're getting used to probably can in Boston now, you know, you just had to go so inside their heads and really almost understand their business better than they understood it. And, you know, understood how they would implement the technology. So I said that as a way of kind of incubating in Ireland and then getting into these different countries. And then we took a view that now what we found was where that strategy got questioned was any of these, um, they call them large business units, but any of the big markets, U.S., U.K., Germany, possibly Canada, but definitely like France, is... um, that there's all kinds of uh market access issues in those markets that you just that they want, they'll almost by design not easily adopt technologies from other markets into those markets There almost seems to be oh, really? you know these kind of natural blockers to those markets where there's some gatekeeper or some additional system in place that says hey unless you're a french company or unless you're a uk yeah. company and have this pet you know you know this certification or this system so we found that strategy to be excellent to get us from like Ireland to Portugal, to Netherlands, to Belgium, yeah. to Israel, to South Africa, to Latvia, to, you know, we went everywhere. So we, and we largely implemented those projects from the Irish market. Um, but then as soon as we got to the bigger markets, we had to have like feet on the ground. And like what you were talking about, Ken, you, you had to some living and breathing the challenges of that market and almost like talk to them in their local vernacular. And if you yeah. couldn't do that, you couldn't survive their processes. And in those those units would be so big inside these organizations that they almost had carte blanche. They didn't have to do what Global told them to do. You know, they could just kind of do what they wanted to do. So that was my take on it.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I think I mentioned to both of you that like I, I, I thought I knew the US market. I've been traveling back and forth for about 15 years. Uh, and it was only when I lived there for a very short period of time in Boston that, you know, I realized just how complicated. When you were, the, when you were having to fill out the Insurance forms and try to figure out where to bring your kid, which ER system, like how different and how complicated it is. Like you know, Ireland or U.K. Like they're you know you can figure it out, but the U.S. is so big and so fragmented, right? And and then thinking about how you take so how, how that's a, that's good and bad, right? It, it's it's scary but also exciting. So how do you then think, Jim, about that transition from the Latvias and the Israel's and Germany, <laughs> the world into like your home country and kind of how your strategy has to evolve there.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, like you can't. You could can probably talk about your your. I'm when I say I'm I'm American Irish instead of Irish American. I've gone the other way, you know. Um, it, but the the I, I think that the market there's this is this weird kind of contingent contiguous nature of the market, right? That it's all one market in the U.S. in one way, and in yeah. another way, it's it's all these like disparate systems that you know that kind of are reflective of each other, but they're, they don't, you know, it doesn't pass along. So, so you're in this constant state of, of it's, it is one market and it's not one market. And, um, you know, and, and then, so you then have to start, like anything, you have to start sub-segmenting the market into like how you attack it. And, you know, what's these natural, you know, like if you go into specialty pharmacy for us, then, you know, they distribute across all the US states, right? So now you're, you're accessing it, but you're only accessing for the customers that they're being asked to service. Um, so that becomes a way into it. If you do the insurance segment, then you end up in their regional uh, kind of profile, yeah. you know, if you go to Medicare. So, if it, so it's, like, it's like a lot of things you, it's where I think if you go to Canada, they have, you know, or you go to some of these other markets where, you know, they, they do implement regionally. The U.S. doesn't quite implement regionally, right? It's like, it's this kind of, I don't know, Ken, you agree here?
1: yeah you know absolutely i do agree the i think the the challenge is sort of and for for all companies who go through this phase um i think probably healthcare is probably worse than most other industries is this kind of pilot isis um where um
0: you find that is that is that in the US as well?
1: Is it the a- I think it's more in the US. Uh, in in a lot of ways, personally, um, it's kind of some of the challenges that we've had to push through. Is that you know they just purchased a electronic health record system for for forty six million dollars, yet won't spend X on a solution um, that's many you know a fraction of a fraction of the cost. It's it's just very strange. I think it's where budget sits and decision making sits, and all those challenges are. Um, yeah, I mean, for us, you know, at the same time uh, we brought on Optum Health, one of the biggest insurers in the US, we brought them on in, in July 2012. So we brought them quite early in our, in our journey, um, even before we'd really kind of really entered the UK market, which was quite strange. Um, and we kind of continued or I continued to, 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 to kind of sell by vacation. So flying back and forth, flying back and forth to the point it got to a level where I was essentially spending 75% of my time, 80% of my time away. Um, uh, we just had our our, our first um, son, uh, Harry. Um, so that was challenging, um, to put it mildly. Um, so we kind of, myself and my wife had a, had a conversation, which was basically, you're traveling 80% of the time to the US. Why don't we live in the US? and then travel 20% back, yep. you know, uh, typical, and then, and then COVID, typical clarity of thought. Um, so um, so we did you that. Well. <laughs> You've you married well, Ken.
0: <laughs> now, now with COVID, we're all locked up in our, our, our rooms. And so how let's, let's kind of, I know we're kind of getting into the last part of the time, but uh, now, that, now that we're all trying to sell remotely and work remotely, tell us, Jim, what's that? How's that? Uh, how's that playing with you? And then Ken will get your perspective.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the beginning of it, I, you know, we talked about this before, Martin. Like, is that it was it was better? I think almost. So so meaning, you know, because of all the, you know, Ken, you talked about mental health, but that's really the virtualization of healthcare was now happening. Yeah, um, it's real. There was a panic. There was a need to kind of embrace solutions. Um, you know, people didn't really. there was almost energy, in the you know, it was almost like a. a you know, all the negativity in the world. And it was just kind of positivity. And I think like healthcare, you know, was stepping up. Right. So there was this enthusiasm and energy in it. And then, and then we got the benefit of like, like Ken was talking about not having to be on the plane. Right. So, yeah. so we got this efficiency benefit and we got this enthusiasm to embrace it. Um, and, and so that for us, that led to a lot of deals and, you know, we signed a lot more deals and a lot faster. And there was an efficiency to that. I, I think now um, I wonder, and I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that it's there, but is is that that enthusiasm like now it's here to stay? Like what sticks about that business development process, and when do you need that actual you know just people getting in a room, solving problems, mm. getting to know each other a little bit better, getting to like each other, getting mm. to understand that that only comes with um you know it, you know a more you know a kind of intimate interaction with people, and and I think that you know it's like the breaking bread idea you know having a meal with someone. You know, changes your relationship, and and do we become, you know, more transactional? And it, you know, we find like I find it is that the the older people, which I'll put myself in one of those <laughs> columns, unfortunately, um, you know, are really missing that human contact. And then some of the some of the younger people in my team actually are either kind of grown up this way, and they don't necessarily seek it as much as, as we do. So I, then my question is, is you know, are we overvaluing that you know, human to human contact? Or are they undervaluing it? It's probably somewhere in the middle. So I think I, I think we're taxing it now. And Martin is my take on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Ken, what do you think?
1: Yeah. I, I. You know. I think certainly at the start there was a there was a novelty factor to it. Um, That's good. But yeah. Um, I, I, you know. Listen. I'm I'm lucky uh, in terms of the little little units. I think moving to a different country, uh, Jim, as you'll know, and Martin, as you'll know as well we'll we'll test a relationship a marriage um and you'll either kind of it'll either work or it won't yeah. and it's worked for us so we've kind of locked into a little fort as we kind of have seen ourselves a little unit um so i suppose in in the starting period of time it, it essentially kind of gave us more time together that was that was kind of had been missing for the last couple of years so there was a huge benefit to that um my concern is with the wider silverclad team, um, the challenges they go into, be you single, be you married, be you have an elderly parent or parents or relations or whatever else it is, people's minds are being pulled, they're being strained, they're being stressed so heavily right mm-hmm. now. Um, the second wave, and it's almost in, in some ways, there's a third and a fourth wave going to come as well in, in different ways, shapes and forms. It's hard for people to process. It really is a struggle. Um, mm. And, you know, you need to have some some good coping mechanisms to be able to handle it. Mm. Um, and for people who are working, you know, we have a ridiculously passionate, caring... Uh, em- they they take empathy into the next stage, which is that, that kind of compassion stage. Um, so they work every hour under the sun. And that's wonderful, but it's not. Um, because they shouldn't be... And they have personal and they need time down and they need to sharpen the ax and all the other cliches that will come in. And those cliches are there for a reason because we need time off. Um, and, you know, um, people starting early in the morning, finishing later or, or kind of almost not finishing. It's, it's laptop, close, bed, open up laptop on lap or laptop on kitchen table or laptop in home office. And it's, I think, you know, it's challenging an awful lot of the norms of, of what we have in terms of, you know, our office, uh, you know, what will an office look like in in a year's time? I think it's going to be a hotel lobby kind of type deal Mm -hmm. that you kind of come in and you check in for half a day or a day. And there's those of those kind of rooms rather than what what was there before. So, yeah, I think we were challenged with the, so in March, the team, we reached out to every healthcare organization that we were contracted with or were discussing contracting with. So, uh, and basically said, can we offer help no ifs, no buts, no catches, no exclamation marks, no no messing. Um, and they all kind of came back to the university and said, "Can you help us with our own staff, our own team members, our own workforce?" So the, the 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 product and dev team built out uh, a COVID suite with a COVID uh, program called Living in Challenging Times. Thing they built it in eighteen days and got tested with with some amazing experts around the world. Um, um, we went, went along and, and essentially pushed it out and, and made it enabled it for all the HSE workforce um, that have been pushed out to GPs across Ireland, uh, as we speak, um, NHS workforce, and then just some of the biggest healthcare organizations here in the US. Uh, and they're all extremely grateful uh, for it. And, and I think even more grateful as time went on and realized it was, there kind of wasn't a catch. It was just, you know, we had raised money earlier this year. We felt we had to do it. And we kind of went kind of quiet enough about it and just did it. The challenge with that, though, a lot of people sacrificed a lot in, internally within Silver cloud their personal time, their own personal relationships. Mm. Uh, and, and it does cause burnout. Um, it, it really does. And that's a big thing that we have to be so, so careful of as mm. we go into towards whatever your holiday is, be it Christmas what, or other, it, it's that kind of burnout feeling.
2: What strikes me, Ken, like listening to you talk about that that program is, um, you know, I was saying with, with, with Ken and Martin you're the same way is like, know kind of giving into the system like every time i've met ken like in an airport or you know talking about like doing an investment round or whatever it is he you're kind of giving into the you know like and it doesn't seem like it's an effort like you're like hey jim here's how i tackle that problem what's going on can we help you and you say the same thing to my uh, co-founder karen so the idea of just kind of giving into it and not knowing what you're going to get back if anything that you just have an opportunity to help um you know, and, and you wonder about our ability, like, like, you know, now that we have to do this all remotely, you know, how does that change, right? Like now you have to do it through software. Like you, you can get, you can help them, but you got to help them through software instead of meeting them up and, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, meeting with them and giving some enthusiasm or. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, for me, I think definitely miss the conferences where you could do the back to back, to back, to back, to back, to backs. And you'd be exhausted and you go have a beer and you decompress. And then you meet somebody you met earlier on and have a beer with them. And it's just, there was so much of that which was which was amazing um, that I'll, I'll, I'll sorely miss. Um And you learned and you heard and you got the gossip and you, you got the inside scoop on this. And that yeah. was important. That yeah. was important.
0: Well, guys, we're almost out of time. What I've taken away from this is that uh, it's all about resilience. <laughs> just keep them going, you know. <laughs> just keep them going, no matter how hard it takes. Just keep them going. So well, we always ask our guests one question, which is if you weren't, running digital health companies founding digital health companies in another universe another time if you had another way of living your life what would it be if you weren't doing this what would you be doing
1: oh
2: I'd be in a I'd be in a shed building shit. <laughs> I'd be like I'd be like
0: or just shit.
2: <laughs> oh yeah I mean like products and things and you know like I'm not quite an artist and I wouldn't be that good at it but i you know I love I'd I just love tinkering. I don't know if that's something more recently, but I love coming up with ideas and assembling physical products. I don't know what that means.
0: Good answer.
1: <laughs> I, I Yeah, for me, I think there's probably a similarity with what Jim mentioned. I think I'd be the modern Howard Hughes or love to aspire <laughs> to be the modern Howard Hughes. That <laughs> level of uh, eccentricity, um, inventiveness, but also a pilot as well. So I well, think I I'd love that. all of those things together um, yeah. would be something that... Uh, Yeah, another world.
0: Brilliant. Well, guys, thanks. It's been awesome. Appreciate your time.
1: Not at all. Thank you, Martin. Thanks, Jim.
0: Okay.